and here we go. This is uh, Romans part one. This is going to be a long series of talks. Romans is a big letter. It's the big one. It's the argument for the good news to the Roman world. Uh, my One of my favourite um, Christian authors, a theologian and former bishop, N.T. Wright. He might still be a bishop, actually. He has described this letter as the most important work from the ancient world. It is the theological case for Christ sent to the church in the most influential city in the world at that time and one of the most influential cities and nations ever. And the letter is divided into two sections, although the majority of uh, the 16 chapters, 11 of the 16 chapters, is taken up with the explanation of what Christ has done, the gospel message. The second section is then like our response to that. And obviously, given the length of Romans compared to the other letters we've been going through, this is probably going to take four or five little talks rather than two. Um, So the basic outline of the first section is explaining humanity's sinfulness and the forgiveness of sins through Christ, which brings freedom from our sins. And then Paul wraps us all up in the light of Israel's past and present and future, which we'll be getting to over four talks, maybe. And from its very first verse, we get a taste of how different Christianity is going to be for the Roman world. And it opens with a bit of a bang. Romans 1.1 says, From Paul, a slave to Christ, I have been sent out. Now, for a Roman citizen, who Paul was, to describe himself as a slave would be absolutely unthinkable. Romans were the most powerful nation in the classical world. They were not slaves. They took slaves. They owned slaves. Slaves Slaves were used like objects if the slave owner wanted to. And Paul is not just using metaphor. He really means it. His life is like as a slave to Christ. His life is no longer about himself and his own ambitions. It is entirely about going out and preaching the word of his Lord. And then, of course, he gets into what this good news is. He says it's about God's son who was born into King David's line, was proved God's son when he was raised from the dead. And it is this man, Jesus. And through him, Paul then says he has the privilege and authority to preach good news to the Gentiles and not just the Jews. And his reason for making this very specific is saying, no, it's not just for the Jews, it's for all people, because then God will be glorified by more people, by both Jews and Gentiles. In verse 6, Paul tells the Romans that they are now also invited to belong to Christ also. Everything always to bring more glory to God. Um, It's important to understand that in Rome, not just the city, but as a whole at the time, that the cult of Caesar was the fastest growing cult in Rome. And if we read Paul's letter to Rome in this light, we can see he's even more bold and extremely important um, because he's challenging this idea that Caesar is God. And it's a challenge to the Roman world um, for them to view, you know, Caesar and the world around them a little bit differently. And and Paul knows as a, a Roman citizen, a former Pharisee, that he had lived a life of cruel practices, prejudice, self-righteous hypocrisy, you know, very pious lifestyle. And so the change in him is remarkable that he now counts himself as a slave to Christ. And from that high position he would have had being a slave to Christ. And in Christ, he sees the total fulfillment of all scripture that, of course, Paul, being a Pharisee, would have formally believed had to be served fully by the law, sometimes by hurting people, Christians in particular. And even though 
his example of a sinful life may in many ways exceed our own, the challenge is still there. We are invited to belong to Christ, but we have to be aware of who Christ really is and what this life will then mean for us. And from that point, he begins to go in depth to what the good news is. So feel free to take a few minutes to read on. Read on, and Paul gives his reasons for not having been able to make it to Rome. Um, you can read all that if you'd like. And then Paul says the following. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And a lot is going to hang on those points. But the crux is that God brings salvation to those who have faith and to those who believe in him. And Paul is quick opening this letter with a message of hope before he can start breaking down the scope of what the good news is. And he starts with the hard stuff. My Bible is headlines this, God's wrath at humanity's sin. So before we break this down, spend a few minutes, read through verses 18 to 32. Maybe write down things that stand out to you. Maybe reflect on what stands out most to you and we'll get into this. The problem of sin stems from the rejection of God. And Paul explains that the world has clearly seen God. God has been understood from what has been made, so that we, all people, are without excuses. And Paul is starting here to outline something massive. He's effectively saying that God can be known and seen from all the things in the world, all of creation, and more so that worshipping God in living a life of love, it should be plain, it should be obvious, simply from being alive, that people... Whoever you are, wherever you're from, do not have any excuse for the evils that we do. And from here, Paul says that even though we know better, we've exchanged the glory of God for a lie, for images of humans and beasts. And it is because of that reason God has allowed us to go over to sin. The verse specifically says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. It is this worship of created things which leads us most definitely over to shameful, sinful things. And Paul says quickly that when men and women are inflamed with lust and do shameful things, that this is actually as a response to idolatry of images made to look like human beings. He's not condemning physical attraction and love. Remember, he is speaking most directly to Rome, which was filled with people who would be used as sex slaves. And it's a hard opening chapter, if I'm honest. Paul is very clear that if people do not fill their hearts with God's love and mercy, then God will allow them, or we could say hand them over, to have minds filled with, and I quote, every kind of wickedness. If you've got a few minutes, read back through that list again and have a think about what Paul is saying. Is it something you agree with? Is it too much? Do we think he might be wrong? Do we think he might be totally right? Remember that he opens with this comment that humanity can see and worship God 
just by seeing him in the world around. He's not saying that these evil, terrible people are evil and terrible and that they didn't know any better, but just too bad. He's saying that everyone should be able to see and know what is right. And if you can see that we are beginning to see and know God, and this is going to come back later, that if you've never ever heard of God or the law, or perhaps in our case, if you've never even heard of Jesus, but your heart is full of love, you may be living a life of worship without even knowing it. And it's from that that we kind of bounce onto chapter 2, which is uh, headlined Judgment. So Paul Paul's effectively lumped the Jews, the Gentiles, and everyone in the same boat. We've all idolised and sinned, all of us. Our ancestors, our families, our friends, all of us. And with this in mind, Paul wants us to have a quick wake-up call to how we are treating other people. He says, so when you, mere human beings, pass judgment on them, others, and yet do the same thing, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Paul knows that even though people are being saved and getting to know Jesus, our old prejudices will be quick to catch up on us. In particular, our pride and our judgmental attitudes on those we consider to be making mistakes, particularly if now we're not making mistakes anymore. It's very easy for us to stand on the pedestal and start judging other people. But then look again at this verse in chapter 2, verse 5. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself. Like We may have stopped... We may stop judging others, but if we now stand on a pedestal because we are saved and we look down on others who have fallen into the trap, we have fallen into the trap of pride. And Rome is not that much different in many aspects to our culture today. There's competition, there's intrigue, there's backstabbing, sometimes literally. There is ruthless business dealing and there is ruthless politics. Everyone wants to be the best. Everyone wants grandstanding. And if that sounds familiar, it's because it is. There are some parts of of human nature that are the same all the time. And there are some parts of scripture that that will kind of carry over. There are obviously some parts of scripture that will always need to be understood in foreign contexts and may not be practical anymore. I'm not saying they're wrong, they just might not be our culture anymore. But there are other parts that are always going to be practical and this is one of them paul goes on to say that if there are those who persist in doing good seek glory honor and immortality he will give eternal life but for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil there will be wrath and anger and how better to be self-seeking than to stand judgmentally over others read through romans 12 not Romans 12, Romans 2, verse 12 to 16. And it says, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have it. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times defending them. That bit in particular, that verse 15, the requirements of the law on the hearts, is, is super important. And this is some weighty theology, um, but it's important for Paul to bounce on from his statement that God is not playing any favourites to explain how people will be judged 
and therefore why we don't need to do any judging and need to concentrate more of our time serving and loving others rather than judging them. Paul then says that only those who obey the law will be made righteous. But what he means by this, he, he means that it is those that show the requirements of the law in their hearts. That verse in verse 15, their conscience is bearing witness. That is the law that is going to make people righteous. There, there is a question that I've heard in my life that people have probably heard for thousands of years. If God is truly just and is truly good, what about those people who have never heard of him? How can he condemn them? What about people who have never read the Bible? How can God condemn them? Surely he won't do that. And Paul says, no, no, God won't condemn them for that. In that case, our very nature as people, we can, we can be seen as image bearers. God may manage his own image with some of God's divine nature, but also people of choice who are also free to reject the goodness of God in our lives. And Paul is saying that it is our hearts that will decide the matter not anything that we've written. And that's not to say, before you all jump on me, that I'm a universalist and all roads lead to God no matter what and that Jesus and the gospel is not really necessary. Far from it. Paul is simply saying that for those of us who have not had the law to point us towards God and therefore for those of us who have not yet heard about Jesus, their hearts will be the decider on whether or not they knew God and lived rightly or not. Take a few minutes to think about what we think about that and whether our hearts measure up. Oh man, this is a... Oh no, I'm nearly done. Paul then addresses the Jewish people who have become Christians. Now, the Jews had historically been the people of God and had gotten into a state where they believed themselves to be better than Gentiles. And there were Jews who would not associate with non-Jews lest they defile themselves. And while I really like that church is not quite like that these days, perhaps in some places it still is. Because we are saved. Other people who don't yet know Jesus are not saved. They're unclean. They're sinners, right? Paul addresses the Jews in the Roman church and then he asks them, if you know God's will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed in it, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind... A light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, because you have the law. You then who teach others, do you teach yourself? You preach against stealing, do you steal? You say people shouldn't commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You hate idols, but do you rob temples? You boast in the law, but do you dishonour God by breaking the law? And Paul is basically saying he knows the hypocrisy of people. He knows that living in this way is not a route to salvation. We can't earn our way to God by being high-minded. Because when we pick out and judge the sins of others, it is 100% certain we are guilty of the same things. That's Paul's challenge to the Jews. But perhaps we can read it back in a different light as if Paul is saying it to us who are Christians now. He might say, we who are saved in Christ, who know the will of God, do we teach and listen? Do we steal or give? Do we idolise things we shouldn't or serve God in humbleness, seeking to be more like him? Do we commit adultery, even in our minds? And this is not a judgmental attack. We all need to reflect on our hearts. And I'm guilty of all of those things. 
And it's clear in Rome that the church is having trouble figuring out how to mix the circumcised Jews with what they might see as the dirty Gentiles. Now they figure out whether they're going to be hierarchies. Should there be Jewish people on top, Gentiles in the bottom? And Paul sets the record straight. He says a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly. And circumcision outwardly and physical is not what makes someone a Jew. He says, no, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. And he's not talking about Jewishness as in like the culture. He's talking about being holy and set apart and true people of God. The circumcised heart is the set-apart heart that has died to the ways of the world. It has nothing to do with physical stuff or your relations and genealogy or money. It all comes down to what is in your heart. That was a bit of a long one. Take a moment, perhaps, to reflect on Romans 1 and 2, especially this idea that the law that God is judging is first found on the heart. Is that a new concept? Is that an old concept for you? Is it challenging? Is it something you do not agree with? Get in touch.